Let me apologize here in the beginning. I've stayed out of the pulpit because I'm fighting a sinus infection that just will not go away. So if I have to clear my throat or if I cough, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. I, uh, I have no control over it, and uh, I'm still fighting it, but I just couldn't stay out of the pulpit anymore. And I am going to review pretty heavily the last section that I preached, kind of to ramp up into, because I stopped in the middle of a verse. So I'm going to review. So I apologize to those who, are, who have heard this before, but I'm going to go through it a little more thoroughly than I usually review to kind of ramp up into uh, the verse that we will be um, hopefully covering new material. We're in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has just spoken in verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into, ooh, it's cold, enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's good, Karen. Thank you. <clears throat> and as I said before, that would be a shock to the people in the day of Jesus Christ because there were no more righteous people in the estimation of the people than the scribes and the Pharisees. And so to hear them say, unless you're better than them, unless your, your righteousness far exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. When we look at the end of this sermon, and if you look at chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. So there's two things that they're astonished at here. They're astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So there was not only something about his doctrine that was different, there was something about the way that he preached. He preached with an authority that was unknown to them. And so one of the reasons stated is that they taught, he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They were astonished at his doctrine, at his teaching with authority. What did Jesus teach? He taught concerning a righteousness that far exceeds what they thought was necessary for entrance in the kingdom of heaven. They were content in that day with an external righteousness. Jesus taught that the righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven was a righteousness that no one could have except it were given to them. It was a righteousness that once it was given, transformed the entire personality inside and out. So that a person then lives according to that righteousness which was given. Now Jesus is going to introduce six subjects that illustrate his point. And he's going to show us how our righteousness must be greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees in practice, but as well as what they taught. The righteousness that Jesus will teach about 
is contrary, completely opposite of the external, superficial, and hypocritical righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees in the way that they acted as well in what they taught. So each subject is introduced with the same formula. Verse 21, ye have heard that it was said by them of old. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old. But I say unto you, each of these subjects will show that the righteousness of one who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And let me put it in what our today's vernacular, if I could. To be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven is to have eternal life, to have the atonement applied to you so that your sins are forgiven and you are reconciled to God. In a word, to be a citizen in the kingdom of God means you are saved. And that righteousness of one who is a citizen of the kingdom of God is an internal righteousness that obeys the true nature and spirit of the law at the level of the heart. And hence it is a righteousness that is divine. And it comes from God. We read Hebrews chapter 8. Under the new covenant, the law of God is now written in our hearts. We covered this in the last section, verses 17 to 18. The law of God written into our hearts means that we now have an inner ability, an inner love, an inner motivation to obey the true spiritual content of the law. So Jesus uses these six subjects to show that it is the spirit of the law that matters, not the letter. <coughs> the righteousness of the kingdom is not an external, mechanical righteousness based on the letter of the law. It is an internal righteousness that flows from the heart. So Jesus is going to interpret the letter of the law according to the spirit and the way in which God intended it to be understood. <clears throat> Since God is concerned about the heart and always has been, the law is not about externals. <coughs> Excuse me. Or actions only. Being in conformity to the law was not to be thought of with regard to actions only. I'm sorry. <coughs> I'll try to calm down. God is concerned with what leads to the actions. Because it is out of the abundance of the heart from within that man speaks or that evil actions come from. <clears throat> so Jesus said, ye have heard. Jesus was not assuming that everything the common people heard was actually in the Old Testament. And we know that most, a lot of what they heard was not actually part of the Old Testament. The scribes and the Pharisees regarded their oral tradition as equal in authority to the Old Testament. Excuse me. <coughs> and what the 
they taught from the Old Testament may, may not have been what God intended. So this phrase refers to the rabbinical teaching that had been passed down from year, year after year after year after year, and those interpretations of the Old Testament, not necessarily the Old Testament itself. So Jesus is going to address a traditional interpretation of an Old Testament command. You have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not kill, but whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Jesus is correcting the false teaching of the Jewish written and oral tradition. These had accumulated over the past several hundred years. And in essence, they had distorted the true nature of God's word. <clears throat> and the scribes and the Pharisees had exalted aspects of their oral tradition that put the Ten Commandments into the background. Now, understand also that the common people in Jesus' day, since the time of the exile and their return, they did not have the scriptures in their own language, which would have been Aramaic. They could not read or speak Hebrew <coughs> any longer, nor did they possess copies of the Old Testament. They were very expensive, very large. Uh, everyone had to be hand-copied. So due to their respect of their religious leaders, they just accepted whatever they were taught. And so most of Jesus' hearers depended on what they heard in the synagogues because they could not read. <clears throat> and that's where the interpretations, the oral traditions were passed down. Now two things seem to be what Jesus is concerned with here. Number one, correcting the erroneous tradition. And number two, showing what the true nature and authority of the law was. So he handles the sixth commandment. You have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. And, yet, and on the surface reading this, I thought to myself, how could they get it wrong? What could be wrong? How could they teach something that Jesus felt it was so necessary to correct? This is, of course, the sixth commandment in the second table of the law. It's also referred to in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made man. The penalty and the reason are given. The severe punishment was due to the fact that man was made in the image of God. To murder someone made in the image of God was to, and I quote John MacArthur, assault the sacredness of the image of God. You need to keep that in mind as we go through the rest of this passage, especially where it talks about don't call people names here. <clears throat> and so the scribes and the Pharisees had taught for centuries that if you kept yourself from the actual physical act of murder, you've obeyed the sixth commandment. So they took the sixth commandment and they compared it to Numbers 3530. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses, but one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. And they also compared it to Genesis 9-6, which I just read. 
And so this verse in Numbers pronounced death for the one who unlawfully took a person's life. And so the, uh, the logical result of that comparison was that the Sixth Commandment referred to the physical act of taking a person's life and only that. And so they made the Sixth Commandment speak only about murder. And Jesus is saying what they were doing was weakening what God meant. On the surface, there'd appear to be nothing wrong with what they had heard. Their interpretation was flawed in this way. They felt that they had kept the commandment by just avoiding the physical act of taking another person's life. And it was flawed in what they left unsaid. They did not go far enough in their teaching, as Jesus is going to explain. So they interpreted it in such a way as to be able to say, I can check this one off. I've never killed anybody. I've obeyed the sixth commandment. I'm right with God here. Now, they viewed the law in a negative manner. The law says don't do this, and so they kept the law in a negative manner. They could keep it very easily that way. The law was not meant to merely keep us from certain behavior. The law was meant uh, in a positive way to move us to certain behavior. Loving God and loving man. And so murder was defined by the scribes and the Pharisees as merely an external act of shedding somebody's blood. Now Jesus said in verse 22, But I say unto you. Now understand this. Jesus is not changing the law nor is he expanding the law. He's going to show us that keeping the law is more than just the external aspect of the law or the letter of the law. The law went further than what they had heard and understood. Can I say it this way? The law had an internal component to it. And so Jesus, by saying, but I say unto you, and the I in the Greek is emphatic. Jesus is contrasting what he is about to say with the traditional interpretations. He sets himself up as the authority, the true interpreter of the law. He speaks as God who gave the law. And he is showing that what he is teaching does not contradict the law or the Old Testament. It is in complete agreement with every word, truth, and principle. He's going to show us that the teaching of the oral tradition does not measure up to what God meant, does not agree with the Old Testament law. And in so doing, he is showing us how the righteousness that God gives is of the heart, and hence he fulfills the law in a person in the heart of a person. 
For out of the heart, Matthew 15, 19 says, proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemy. And this is how, or I should say why, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees fell short of the righteousness that is required to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is going to do in these verses, and I can attest to this because when I studied this, and I started to think about my own behavior as I drive a truck on the roads, he's going to shatter our view of ourselves. He's going to do away with our illusion of righteousness and our illusion of obedience to our interpretation of God's law, which may obscure the true meaning that God intended. We all like to hold to an external righteousness. And when we do, when we have this list of do's and don'ts, and we can check those things off, our view of ourselves will be much higher and complementary, won't it be? So Jesus says, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. In this point in my outline, I have it labeled as killing with unjustified anger. It is possible to break or disobey the sixth commandment by harboring unjustified anger toward another person. <clears throat> to be angry with your brother without a cause. Notice the whosoever. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry, this is everyone that does this, everyone that is angry with their brother without a cause, is in danger of the judgment. In essence, you've broken the sixth commandment. Jesus taught that the true nature of the sixth commandment dealt not just with the external aspect of committing murder, but had an internal aspect as well. The anger and the hatred that leads somebody to murder, even though they've never committed it, they've already broken the commandment. Man, that hurts. Murder is more than just the mere external act. But the anger and the hatred that lie behind the murder also breaks the commandment. God desires truth in the inward part. So if God says do not murder, he must also be saying that he also condemns the thoughts, the anger, the attitudes, the words that lead to murder. Is that not what Jesus is saying? So being angry with someone without a cause breaks the commandment. In other words, folks, unjustified anger towards another person is forbidden by the law of God. Let me repeat that. Unjustified anger towards another person is forbidden by the law of God. Have any of us ever had unjustified anger towards another person? 
I have? Am I misreading this? No. Listen to what the Apostle John says in 1 John 3.15. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. He understood what the Sermon on the Mount was teaching. The kind of anger here is the brooding, simmering type of anger that is nurtured instead of letting it go or dealing with it or let it die. Brooding, simmering type of anger. This is the kind of anger that leads to holding a grudge, to bitterness creeping into our lives, to not forgiving somebody else, to having thoughts of resentment or revenge or retaliation. The kind of anger that leads you to walk the other way when you see that person. Not wanting to communicate with them. To not answer the door when they come over to your house. So Jesus is defining murder differently. The person that has this kind of unjustified anger is guilty. Guilty and shall be danger of judgment. <clears throat> so it's possible to kill with unjustified anger. But notice Jesus didn't stop there. In fact, I want you to notice that this section under this one subject of the sixth commandment actually goes all the way down to verse 26. So let's read the rest of this. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever, whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. And notice the first word in verse 23. What is it? What is it? Therefore. Therefore, because of this, here's what you ought to do. Don't let unreconciled relationships lead you to breaking the sixth commandment. Because he goes on, he says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath anything against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, while thou art uh, in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out from there, till thou hast paid the utmost farthing. And notice what is going on in this passage. It's all linked under the heading, of the sixth commandment. And I think what we can read from this is if we let unreconciled relationships go in our life, we will become angry, we will call them names, and we will be guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. Verses 23 and 24 show us the priority of reconciliation. Be reconciled with your brother 
If there's something between you before you come to worship God, and is there anything of more of the utmost priority in our lives than worshiping God? No. And Jesus said, if you have an unresolved issue between with, with, with a brother or sister or anyone, leave off the most important thing that you do, and that is worshiping me, and go take care of that thing. That's the priority of reconciliation. Verses 25 and 26 gives us the urgency of reconciliation. I wanted to read the whole passage. I'm kind of off script here, but that's okay. <clears throat> it's to show you how important this is and how serious we should take what Jesus is saying. Now, I don't know how you want to read it, but to me, if we have a problem with somebody, we need to take care of it because it will lead to what is going on in verse 22. Unjustified anger and calling people names. And that's what Jesus says here. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. What, what do we do when we call somebody a name or we begin to attack them with our words? We can kill people with our words. And those words are an expression of unjustified anger. Raka here means empty, literally. It is an Aramaic term of abuse and slander. It was an insult that meant, you're a nothing. You're a nobody. Possibly, you're a blockhead or a brainless idiot, an empty head. And so it's, a, and don't, don't, all of a sudden interpret this to the letter of what Jesus says. Well, I've never called anybody Raka. Now, we have our own words today. Jerk, stupid, freak, nitwit, idiot, sap, bonehead, meathead, and other words I can't use in the pulpit. Right? And you may have some that you call people that I've never even heard of. I drive down the road. I used to tell people, you know what, we're Christians, we don't swear. Oh, yeah, we've got Christian swear words. The idea here is any expression of unjustified anger is wrong. You don't take God's name in vain, but do you say something like, oh, good night? Or geez. The idea of calling somebody a name is not just this one name, Raka. It's using expressions that are giving vent to your unjustified anger, whatever it may be. You're guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. 
for expressions of contempt that arise out of that unjustified anger, any kind of abusive language, not just this one word, raka. So when I go down the road and I have a pet peeve, some person's parked in the middle lane and they're just driving and people are passing them on the right and on the left and there's a truck I can't use, I'm not supposed to use the left lane. And I can't get by this person in the middle because there's not enough room between vehicles in the right hand and I call him a bozo. I've disobeyed this, have I not? Do you know that our driving reveals a lot about us, does it not? To insult a man, woman, or child made in God's image is to insult the God that made them in his image, <clears throat> and it's equal to murder. Man, when I began to prepare to preach this, and I'm driving down the road, and got this sermon in my mind, and I called that person in the middle lane a bozo, I realized, man, I just blew it. Lord, I'm a sinful man. But, of course, you guys never do that kind of thing, so right? And the danger here <clears throat> was to be in danger of the council, which would have been the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest authority among the Jews. They, that court, the Sanhedrin, the court of the Sanhedrin tried the most serious offenses. They didn't take up minor stuff. So Jesus is saying, this is a very serious thing. Then he says, but whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now the fool, the word fool, in the Greek is the word moros. We get our English word moron from this word. The meaning, basically, is one who is a moron morally, one who plays the fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It is an obstinate, godless person. To call someone this was saying they were stupid and godless. Can I say this just as an aside? You know, I might not agree with everything that our current president is doing, but as a Christian, we need to be very, very careful we don't call him a name. We're not to speak evil of dignitaries. The interpretation here is this, calling someone a name that is a slur on their reputation. Condemning a person's character is what? Character, assassination. Character, assassination. And the danger here is that they'll be cast into hellfire. Now, we don't have here, from the words of Jesus, three graduations of sin and punishment. 
Jesus is multiplying these examples one on top of the other so that we feel their weight. He's trying to drive home his point here. Hellfire, shall be in danger of hellfire, it's the Greek word Gehenna. That was a, a word that the Jewish people knew very well because it referred to the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was the ravine that was south of Jerusalem where there was a continuous fire burning all the garbage and the filth that came out of the city. And the fire never went out. It was the city dump where garbage was burned. The fire continually burned and, and, and smoke went up continually. This became a metonym for the place of eternal torment. Very vivid picture in the minds of the Jewish people. The idea here is that the ultimate judgment that we ought to be fearing is divine judgment. Divine judgment. <clears throat> By God's standard, the person who, out of unjustified anger, which breaks the sixth commandment, calls somebody a name and assassinates their character, which breaks the sixth commandment, is ripe for God's divine judgment. So in other words, we must not think that we've fulfilled the law by avoiding the shedding of blood. The law points to the root of the problem. And the root of our, the problem is man's anger. According to this, I stand condemned. And according to this, you stand condemned. A commentator by the name of Hendrickson said that Jesus is saying that sinful anger, the kind that leads to bitter words, is in its very nature murder. It is murder committed in the heart. Unless he repents, the person will, with this kind of attitude, faces everlasting punishment in hell. Whatever he may be in human eyes before God, he stands condemned and on his way to never-ending death. Thus, while the scribes and Pharisees placed the emphasis on the outward deed, as if that alone were reprehensible, Jesus traced the deed to the underlying evil disposition of the heart. End quote. I don't know about you, but this stirs me to the depth of my being. And Jesus has multiplied these examples so that we would feel the weight of it. And so here we come face to face with the truth that we are not as far removed from actual murderers as we thought. Have we ever called, have we ever hated someone in an unjustified anger, called people names, or wished that somebody was dead? We've broken the sixth commandment. Anyone angry enough to call other names is guilty and in danger of hellfire. Now, folks, I need to make a little bit of an aside here. We're not talking about righteous anger or indignation. We're not talking about the kind of anger that Jesus had against the hypocritical spiritual leaders of his day. 
Yeah, he called them fools and he called them blind. But remember, Jesus was the son of God and he was passing and pronouncing judgment on them. He's not calling them names nor angry with them for anything that they did against him. Jesus was angry against sin. There's a difference. When I'm angry with that person in the lane, they won't move over. I'm angry with them not because of his behavior so much, but angry because he's holding me back. It's not talking about the kind of anger and frustration that Paul had against false teachers or legalists like in the book of Galatians. Or David against the enemies of God, especially in the imprecatory Psalms. That kind of anger, David and Paul and especially Jesus, is a kind of anger that arises out of a love for God and a love for purity and righteousness and a hatred for sin. And it has as its focus the glory of God. Our anger is rarely that kind. We get angry with others when a wrong is done against us, whether it's real or perceived. We get angry with others because we feel like we've been insulted or we've been neglected. And our anger has what is its focus? Ourselves. Our feelings. Our rights. And we burn in anger, not against sin and injustice, but with wrongs that are done against us when we are personally attacked or insulted. So the question comes to us, do we commit murder under Jesus' definition? The harboring of grudges, the calling of names, the losing of our temper, Gossiping and trying to make other people look bad, speaking evil of others, speech that we would term character assassination, destroying others with words. Are we guilty of this? Righteousness, spirituality is not some list that we can check off. Unsafe man, hypocritical religious people always reduce holiness to a list of do's and don'ts. That way, if he performs what's on the list, or he avoids what's on the list, he's okay. Jesus is showing us that righteousness is not a list. It has demands that insist on application to all relationships every single day of our lives, and it has an internal aspect. Here's the, the blessing. It is possible by God's grace, to avoid breaking the sixth commandment. Because under the new covenant, God's law has been written into our hearts. And he's given us the indwelling person and power of the Holy Spirit to live out that law written in our hearts. And what a blessing it is now when I go down the road I don't call that other person a bozo or a jerk or whatever other names are there. I'm starting to think now, you know what? He just doesn't know any better. 
He's not been taught right. And I don't look at it as so much of a front of him holding me back or doing something to me personally. Now, folks, that, that's taken a number of weeks to work through into my life. And the question is, has God brought somebody to your mind that you are unjustly angry with that you need to take care of? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the person and power of the Holy Spirit within us which helps us to obey your word. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us, myself included, Lord, that you would convict us of sin, that you'd give us the ability to make these things right, and you would help us to live according to the true intent of your law. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.